Hello and welcome to the Tillage Edge with me, Michael Hennessy. This is your regular update for all your tillage news and advice. Oilseed rape area increased in 2022 and the majority of farmers are very happy with both the yields and price this year. Although the cost of inputs have increased hugely over the past couple of years, the forward price for 2023 is roughly 60% more than the average price for the previous five years. An average yielding oilseed rape crop will leave a similar margin to a good crop of winter wheat or any other cereal in the rotation. So it's worth considering the crop, but in order to get the best yields and to minimize costs, there are a number of steps which should be taken before planting. To discuss these areas, I'm delighted to be joined from Oak Park by Dermot Forrester, a researcher and Shea Feed and a tillage specialist. Shea, can I first come to you? For those considering planting oilseed rape this year, what's the most ideal time of putting the crop in the ground? Um, we're past the middle of, of August now, Michael, so we're getting close to that time now. And I suppose uh, I would always kind of say, look, it depends on where you are in the country as well. Um, as you know, I deal with growers up in the north and northwest. And for those guys, I would be saying, you know, they should be starting any time they get a chance now at this stage. But for most of the country, I suppose, next week is probably when they would have targeted starting to drill. And I, I certainly wouldn't have a problem with that um, for any time from the 20th onwards. And in just in the year gone out, I would have seen that fellas who got in kind of in that, you know, 20 to 25th of August sort of slot last year when there was kind of a break in the harvest. Those crops performed particularly well last year. They got up and got going quite quickly, got on good covers over the winter. And, you know, they didn't tend to suffer too much from pigeon grazing, which which helped later on the season. So I would say once once next week comes, I suppose most people will be starting to drill then. Okay, so planning has to start in earnest, I suppose. Mm. So w- with that, Jay, there's 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 a there's a myriad of varieties out there, and people can choose from a a conventional or a hybrid, and then some have extra stuff built into them. They've got resistance to viruses and like leaf spot and pod shatter and even sclerotinia out there now. Maybe you might just give a, a few pointers as regards maybe the really key ones that growers should be looking out for to try and uh, having the varieties you're going to pick for this year. Yeah, um, if you look at probably where a lot of our losses in yield come from, Michael, they're primarily disease and pod chatter. So uh, really what you're looking for, whether it be a hybrid or a conventional, and most of the varieties that are available now tend to be the hybrids. So what you're really looking for there are varieties which have light leaf resistance to light leaf spot and foma, and you're also looking for uh, varieties which have um, a pod shatter, a high score for pod shatter resistance as well. Um, and that's that. I suppose that's important because quite often when it comes to harvest time, if you get kind of windy weather after desiccation or close to harvest, you know that kind of uh, that kind of uh, trashing of, of the wind or whatever can lead to 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 um, this this pod shattering and you can get quite a bit of loss at that stage. So I suppose they're probably the ones that I would look at. As you say, there are varieties now which also have sclerotinia resistance. That's something, again, if you're in a a system whereby you have a lot of uh, brassicas in rotation, be it cover crops, or you've been around the farm a couple of times with with um, oilseed rape, that's something you should should look at as well because sclerotinia tends to build over over time. So they are probably ones I would be looking at in, in terms of what's available on the variety sheet list. Okay, and 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 then maybe slightly different. Shay, you also have varieties out there which have, um, I suppose, an inbuilt control system for controlling brassica weeds. You might just bring us through through those varieties. Yeah, so there are a number of varieties out there called Clearfield varieties, Michael which um, are a hybrid type variety um, and basically they are varieties which you can use a product called Clearanda, which is a herbicide 
which gives good control of brassica wheat, so fodder rapes, other brassicas as well. Um, and also conventional varieties. So if, if you grow uh, a clear field variety uh, and you'll know them by the name on the on the bag, they have the distinct CL um, after their name. So uh, DK imprint CL would be a, a, an example of a clear field variety. Those those um, those varieties can be grown in, say, in sites where they have high brassica pressure. And also, if you have a lot of volunteer oilseed rape coming from a previous crop, that clearander will kill those volunteer plants coming through as well. So that is an option there for people who have maybe, as you say, brassica problems in certain fields and they want to grow an oilseed rape variety. Those clear field varieties, as I say, they're distinct with the CL branding on them. They're the variety to go for in that situation. Okay, and I think most of the varieties Shay, you, you you've been talking about there have generally been hybrid type varieties. Yeah. What sort of seeding rate are are are, are should farmers be looking at? Well, generally speaking, and maybe Derek might come in on this later on. Generally speaking, when you want what you want a good stand of of crops, so you want somewhere in the region of about thirty to forty plants per square meter. Um, and in that scenario, you're looking at planting maybe in terms of hybrids, you're looking at probably about fifty to sixty seeds per square meter. That tends to be in around three kilos a hectare, if you want. Um, most most packs now come in four or five hectare packs, and they're all you know they're generally based on the thousand seed weight that that the crop has for that year. But generally, in that sort of ballpark, you're looking at about somewhere around two and a half, three kilos a hectare of those hybrid varieties. Okay, so Dermot, uh, I want to just bring you in uh, for a minute here. You obviously have looked at a good bit of. Uh, establishment systems uh, in Oak Park. What obviously ploughing is kind of the major one that's out there. But apart from ploughing, is there other establishment systems that can work equally as well when compared to ploughing, or, or what have you found in trials? Yeah, we've looked at that. Um, uh, Roisin Byrne worked with us there a few years ago, and we did look at a, a range of systems from plough till and so, as you said, through min till and through strip till. Uh, the strip till one we, we looked at at that stage was your the type with the subsoiler legs running a little bit shallow, uh, row spacing of uh, 600 millimetres, um, uh, you know, just a shallow or a, um, a narrow cultivated layer at that sort of spacing. And you can also use direct drill as well. And I suppose what we found really is that uh, oilseed rape is amenable to establishment nearly by all systems, right? But you do still have to kind of stick to the basics in terms of that you are working at a time of year where moisture conservation is often is, is often key because you know this, the time of year can be quite dry, uh, so certainly you want the seed to be in good condition. So ideally, you do want the seed to be in a kind of fine a fine seed a fine soil area and a firm soil area, so you have good seed to soil contact uh, because that seed is very small as well. So there's very little reserves in the seed, and I, that coupled with it being potentially quite dry, you do need good seed to soil contact. So any of those systems should be operated in a way of doing that. Now, those systems aren't all perfect in that. The strip till system, for instance, I described there um, is a little bit is a little bit different um, in that the one we used had just a subsoiler leg. So the seed or the soil wasn't particularly fine. And the seed indeed was kind of dropped down and the, the, the control of sowing depth wasn't particularly great with that. So you, we will get more variable establishment with that. But even with that, uh, you know, we didn't find that there's huge differences in yield afterwards. Uh, so again, all all systems are kind of amenable, but like there are different ways, I suppose, to manage them. And the, the system of choice, often it's a, it's a factor such as labor would make a big impact on what you'll actually decide to do because farmers are very busy at this time. 
uh, often still involved in harvest, although this year has helped us there, but you have stubble cultivation requirements and so on. So you're looking for a system that's not probably going to take too much time. So certainly the labor saving advantages of some of these systems is important. Okay, so so diverting away from the plow is, is certainly um, something that's not going to impact on your yields along the way. But just in terms of those um, cultivation systems, Dermot, is there an adjustment to be made in terms of the seed rate that you're going to put in there? As you were mentioning, sometimes the, um, the seed depth mightn't be as good as you'd like, or maybe it's a slightly wider row width, maybe. So yeah. is, is there an adjustment needed there? Yeah, I think that what the adjustment is needed for is to compensate maybe for a poor establishment. I think the amount of seed that you sow, even if you're using wide rows, uh, because we went right up to 750 millimeter wide rows, uh, certainly up to five, 600 millimetres, there's, there's not going to be a problem in terms of yield. There didn't seem to be a different response in terms of seed rate to that per se. Okay, But what we would be concerned about with that system is that um, sometimes the seeding mechanism is crude. You're just blowing the seed on top of a, a kind of semi-cultivated or open top, if you like. So I think in that situation, you would be inclined to maybe uh, use a little bit extra seed. So if Shea is kind of saying, uh, 50 seeds per square meter, maybe you go up to 60 or 70 to allow for the fact that they're not all going to establish with that system. Having said that, once they do establish with that system in a fairly tight row, there's good protection from the plant beside it uh, that, that we, we tended to get a good retention, I suppose, of those uh, the, the plants that did come up. So there wasn't a lot of early loss or kind of overwinter loss maybe with some of the, with some of those systems that you, you might expect in the more open uh, scenario. So I wouldn't overdo the change in seed rate with them. But with all the systems, I'd say as well, while there's differences there in terms of depth of cultivation with min till, for instance, the intensity with strip till and that, you know, we still need to be aware of the basics there that if there's compaction there, you might choose one system over another. You might choose a system that does work a little bit deeper or whatever. So don't forget the basics in terms of what you're looking for in terms of creating a seed bed that will both establish a good crop and will support a good crop after that. So, but within that, I think all the systems can work reasonably well. And, and Dermot, as you mentioned, compaction, uh, oilseed rape can suffer quite badly from compaction, can it? Yes, it can. Yeah, I think people kind of say, well, oilseed rape will kind of solve your compaction problems. I certainly wouldn't use oilseed rape that way. I think if you have, uh, you know, because they see a taproot or some part of taproot, oilseed rape will very, very quickly tell you you have compaction problems because if you start looking at the roots in compacted areas and see them uh, trying to branch off sideways rather than going down. So I do think, yes, uh, in terms of uh, compaction avoidance, you do want to avoid having a compacted seabed. So that would certainly steer me towards a system that matched the conditions you have there. So if you have compacted headlands, compacted areas within the field, well, then I go for an establishment system that will in some way deal with that or partly deal with that because it does not like compacted ground. Okay. And Shay, just coming back to you, oilseed rape can be, I suppose, notoriously delicate uh, at, at the very early stages, as Dermot suggested a minute ago. It can, I suppose, at that stage, be also quite prone to pests. What sort of pests should farmers look out for during that establishment phase? Well, at the moment, there's probably two that uh, farmers should be looking out for. Number one, obviously, are, are slugs. Um, and that's probably something that, you know, if you know the field history of, of the farm or the field that you're sowing it in, it's just something that you want to be aware of. And most people will, you know, generally speaking, in their own land, they'll be fairly familiar with, with the land and they'll know whether that field, that particular fields have 
a slug issue or not. The other one that probably gets a lot of airplay, uh, especially in the UK, is cabbage stem flea beetle. Uh, and we know from from our, our, our colleagues across in the UK that it is a significant pest over there. And, you know, the, you, we are seeing areas over in the UK where um, crops, you know, people have, have given up start, stop or stop growing uh, oil to for for that reason. Uh, and basically what it does is it it, it chews a hole or a, a typical symptom of it is they chew a hole in the, in the cotyledon uh, it's like a, a, a pellet hole from a shotgun or something like that. Um, and they, they can decimate the crop very, very quickly, and especially in dry conditions. And that's probably the reason why it's not as big an issue over here is because we tend to have damper damper conditions when, when we saw the oilseed rape and it tends to get away from it quite quickly. Um, the third one then, Mike, which is probably not thought about as much, uh, and especially is a problem if you have late planted crops, are pigeons. And pigeon grazing, um, where you're drilling crops in September can be a significant issue. And I've seen a number of farmers before who drilled late into, into September, into mid or late September, uh, and maybe growth slowed down quite a bit. And the pigeons can simply come along and pull the plant straight out of the ground and decimate a crop very, very quickly. So the two, the other two are the ones that people will be looking at at the moment, but don't forget about pigeon grazing later, later on those later planted crops as well. Shay, you mentioned slugs. Um, if a grower has an idea there might be a slug problem in a field, should that grower um, just apply slug pellets? And if the grower is going to apply slug pellets, is that before um, the oilseed rape is planted or is that after or maybe even during the planting? How, how should a, a grower attack that problem? Um, again, Michael, as you said before, it comes back to the knowledge of the field. So if you know that there's a, a, a bad problem in that field, um, Ideally, you probably first of all you should put down traps. Okay, um, you don't really, I don't really like putting in slug pellets when they're drilling the crops unless it's a very very severe scenario. So really, what you should be doing is an IPM measure is to try and put down some traps, um, and they generally consist of something like a couple of teaspoons of layers mash, let mash under a slate or a plastic bag, um, and come back and have a look at those um, traps. Uh, after a day or 24 or 48 hours. If you see a slug or maybe two or three slugs in that, then definitely I would be inclined to to put out some slug pellets at that stage. But really, I suppose, you know, it does come down to the field. If you have a very, very bad situation, then maybe you should possibly put some in at drilling. Can I ask you just then, uh, Shay, just in terms of oilseed rape, does it need starter fertilizer to optimize that establishment? I suppose, Michael, one of the things about oilseed rape is that it is a good crop to, to try and trap whatever nutrients are left in the soil after the previous crop. So for the most part, especially in soils that are, have, say, an index three or four for P and K, there's probably no need um, to put out a starter fertilizer. Um, however, if you're in a crop that's or in a field that's an index one or two, or maybe where there's straw after being incorporated from the straw incorporation measure, then probably there's there's no harm of putting in you know a bag of bag or two of oats or 10, 5, 25 or something like that just to get the crop going. But for the most part, I would say most people at this stage don't generally use fertilizers on on, on rape at this time of year. And especially given the cost of it this year, you know, you really need to have a look and see whether it's justified or not. Okay. Dermot, can I bring you back in there just in terms of, say, we have a, a, a farmer who tried tried their best to put in uh, all seed rape and, and and get as good good a stand as they could, but the stand didn't turn out to be terribly well. It was kind of, uh, there's a low plant population in it. Should that farmer be worried, or is there a kind of a scenario there where 
oilseed rape might compensate for those lower um, plant stands? Yeah, I think that's an important question, Michael, because I think unless you have completely clear or blank areas in the field, oilseed rape has a tremendous ability to actually compensate for low stands. Like while you mightn't go out to establish, you know, I think Shay was talking about trying to get a target of 30 to 40 plants per square metre. You mightn't deliberately go out to get an awful lot less than that. We've actually, during some of that crop establishment work that we did trying to different systems, we went down to 15 seeds per square metre. We went down to 10 seeds per square metre. And provided, you know, that they weren't, I'll come back to pigeon damage in a minute, but provided those 10 seeds established, uh, and they did in most cases per square, square meter, um, there was no problem getting the full crop from, from, uh, from those areas. And indeed, uh, in most cases, the yield wasn't impacted at all in those areas. So what you want to avoid is the sort of problem that you get where you have maybe widespread slug damage, complete blank areas in the field. You can't compensate for that. But if you have five plants per square meter, your yield might be a little bit less in that square meter than it would be with the optimum number of 30, but it's not by any means a complete write-off at all. So it has the ability to compensate through branching, uh, you know, through pod, producing more pod numbers and so on and so forth. It has, it's, it's very elastic in that sense, and it has the ability to compensate uh, to a great extent. So you'd want to be very careful in deciding uh, that, a, that a field of oilseed rape is a write-off. You'd need whole areas that are blank be, uh, before, before you do that. Now, the exception, I suppose, uh, the one thing that you need to do, if you do end up with low um, plant stands, right, but they're, they're well distributed, if you know what I mean. In other words, there isn't big blank areas. There's five, at least five plants in every square meter, or maybe 10 or 15 in others. The one thing that it won't, that will hit the yield a little bit, is if you get a lot of pigeon damage on that. So if you get the pigeons that bring that right back to a bare stem uh, and don't pull that out, because there's a lot of distance between each individual plant, then it's it's going to take a long time to fill in that green area again in the spring when it starts growing strongly. So we've seen when that has happened that there would be an impact on yield in that situation. So you need to be careful if you have low plant stands, pigeon damage can become more important. You need to get and, those pigeons. And, and that pigeon damage that you were talking about, Dermot, that does that tend to be in September when it's establishing establishing, or is that maybe a little bit further on in the year? It's usually further on, to be honest. I think that the, the pigeon damage, the most of it, which comes in is kind of uh, when, the, when they tend to get very hungry and they're looking for those crops uh, much later and they're coming in around Christmas or maybe a little bit after Christmas or something like that. And what I'm saying to you is that if you have a low plant stand, it's much more important to protect the crop from excessive damage at that stage because it's going to take, there's just too much space between the plants. It's going to take time to fill that green area. If you have a big crop established and the pigeons graze it down, you have a relatively high plant population, a lot of stem, a lot of green material left. That's going to grow back more quickly and, you know, maximize or optimize its canopy size uh, much more quickly after that. So the pigeon damage is going to be have less of an impact on yield. So all you're worried about, about that time is probably shifting the pigeons off at a certain point to let it regrow and it'll be grand. But if you have a small and sparse crop, if you let them graze it down really, really tight, even if you do shift off the pigeons then in the end, the middle or end of February, uh, it's probably going to be a lot slower filling in that green area and that may have an impact on yield. So just if you do have low plant populations, uh, watch the pigeons much more okay. important. And Dermot, as you mentioned, the, kind of the, the, the green leaf area and, and there is an interaction with that in terms of the nitrogen that's captured by the oil strip. You might just briefly give listeners an idea about building up that green leaf area and the potential savings, I suppose, either in nitrogen or cost, and certainly both 
uh, that, that that can present in comparison to maybe cereals uh, that, that might be on the farm? Yeah, look, I'd say Drape is tremendously flexible in that regard. So we now know, and like some of the work that we did, like we're following on from a lot of the UK that's been work on, can- on canopy management. And Shiva Rahimi Tama has just finished a PhD in that area. And, you know, it, it is as they found in the UK, but there's a few other little small tweaks to it. Um, we can manage canopies now. So oilseed rape has a tremendous capacity in the autumn and early winter period of soaking up and beneficially using the nitrogen to build canopy. And the, 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 right, that's a saving, like any cover crop that prevents us uh, having nitrogen lost or leached into, in, into waterways. But unlike the cover crops, it makes good and immediate use of that nitrogen straight away. In other words, if we still have that canopy present in the springtime in advance of, of, of applying fertilizer, uh, there's quite a considerable amount of nitrogen tied up in the plant. And that will substitute for the nitrogen that you would normally apply. So if you have a green area, and most farmers are now familiar with the green area index concept. This year, for instance, we had some very large crops that had a green area index of two units. The, the amount of nitrogen in the crop at that time, this is, this is post-winter, like in February before nitrogen applied, the amount of nitrogen with a green area index of two is about 100 kilos of nitrogen actually in that crop already. Okay, um, A cereal crop can't really do that. You know, you're probably restricted to 20 or 30 kilos of nitrogen at max that it can beneficially, you know, you can grow a crop that would do that. That's still a, a satisfactory crop to manage the following spring, if you like. In other words, if you try to to, to grow something that would carry more nitrogen, use more nitrogen, uh, look, you, you, you cause all sorts of problems. So that 100 kilos of nitrogen that the, the, the oilseed rape has, plus whatever is in the soil might be 20, 30, 40 kilos of nitrogen. You can more or less take that off of the, the nitrogen requirement that's there. And I think earlier in this year, we were looking at an example where that could reduce compared to a smaller crop, right? That could reduce the, uh, the amount of required nitrogen by about 100 kilos per hectare, you know, compared to a smaller crop. Um, and that gives a saving and cost over a very small crop at this year's prices of over 200, maybe 250 euros per hectare. So if the nitrogen is there, if the nitrogen is out there um, in the soil, it, it will capture it very well uh, save it from leaching, but also make good use of it in, in producing nitrogen saving in the following uh, season. And that's kind of unique, unique to oilseed rape. And the, the, the other benefit to this management, canopy management approach is that I think we can say now with a degree of confidence, a few years ago, we'd have been a little bit cautious about, you know, earlier sowing um, and, you know, letting a big canopy develop, develop, if you like, because we we're afraid of producing excessive canopies, right, beyond what we needed an excessive pod layer, excessive flowering, and, and poor, sorry, poor delivery of light to the pod layer, and so on, and crops may be that large. But now, if we aggressively manage those big canopies, so if we do have a lot of nitrogen, we've sown early, it's taken up, we produce a big canopy, now we know we can aggressively manage those in the spring by holding off the nitrogen, and we'll, we'll still produce then an optimum yield in that scenario. So we have the kind of confidence to do that now, that if we have conditions that let the big canopy grow, and not every year, you won't get this every year by any means, but if the conditions are there to take up that nitrogen and produce that canopy, that bigger canopy post-winter, we now know how to manage it by simply cutting back on nitrogen, saving us money then, but also producing a crop structure that will give the optimum yield. So, so I'd be safe to, or would I be safe to say, Dermot, that, uh, that there's obviously there's big savings here, as you mentioned, 250 euros a hectare or potentially 100 euros an acre in that, which is which is phenomenal. 
the key point there, I suppose, really is that getting rape in early will give you the best chance of getting that larger canopy. Would that be right? Yeah, but I'm not saying we're always targeting that big canopy, but but you are right. But what I'm saying is, I suppose last year was the kind of extreme of it, both in terms of price and in terms of the, you know, we did have some very big canopies there. There was a lot of nitrogen that was captured by rape crops. So I don't know, would you necessarily go out? Uh, you know, you won't always get the canopy of two units, but you're right to say by sowing relatively early, as Shea says, from kind of next week onwards to begin the September or whatever in kind of our area. Um, but sowing relatively early gives you the best chance to capture that. And we've certainly seen that our third sowing date in the trials that we did, our third sowing date was mid-September. Now that varied from the 12th of September through to the 20th, depending on the years of the trials. That didn't allow us to uh, capture that to best, effect, to best effect. In other words, we were much more inefficient in trying to capture that nitrogen. And we ended up using more nitrogen on those crops and still getting less yield, a little bit less yield in the trials that we had. So you're correct. If you want to have the capacity to get that benefit, it won't come to you every year because the amount to take up will vary a little bit, but you do need to sow relatively early. But as Shea said, any time from kind of next week to, to the early September probably allow you to do that. Okay. Thanks, Hermit. Uh, finally, Shea, I just want to come back to you in terms of just a final word as regards weeds, because um, there's various different strategies that can be used. Um, so I, I suppose, is there, is there a, a best way of going, going about it in terms of a pre-emerge type herbicide or a post-emerge? What's the best way of going about it? Yeah, Michael, the, the thing to remember, I suppose, about uh, weed control in, in oilseed rape is there's probably there isn't one single uh, approach that you can take. It's going to really depend on the, the history, your knowledge of the field, the predominant weeds in the field and how you tackle those. And unfortunately, again, when you look at the herbicides, then we have plenty of herbicides now compared to where we were a number of years ago. But even when you look at the suite of herbicides that are available at the moment, there's no one herbicide is going to do everything for you. So from that point of view, it's really a program approach that you need to take. Okay. So you need to look and see what uh, weeds are the predominant weeds in that field and then mix, mix and match the herbicides that are going to control them best as they possibly can. So in a lot of cases, probably the most popular way of, of, of most popular option, I suppose, that a lot of growers use is a pre-emergence application, something like catamaran turbo or butasan uh, as the crop or just shortly after the crop is planted. That for most guys is probably the most common and popular uh, um, way of controlling controlling uh, your broadleaf weeds. And that gives the, the crop a good chance to get away and get started and get ahead of whatever weeds that are in in the in the field and i suppose then what guys tend to do after that is quite often uh, volunteer cereals or grass weeds become an issue then um, and again uh, we we tend to try and control those with with, with a graminicide type herbicide okay so that's one approach that plenty of guys are doing another approach that guys are looking at is where they're under pressure drilling the crop as best they possibly can, getting it rolled, getting it consolidated as best they possibly can and getting the crop up. And then maybe they're under pressure for time and they can't get back to spray. There are options there. I mean, there are herbicides there, post-emergent herbicides that you, that you can use. One of the most popular one in that case then is something like AstroCurb. Curb or AstroCurb? AstroCurb has the, has a bit more range in terms of broadleaf weeds. So guys tend to use that. The problem with that is that you're waiting until the crop starts to slow down uh, at, the, at the back end of the year. So you're looking at November, December type timing to apply that. The problem being that you can't have quite a bit of growth um, if you're if you're in the wrong field and you have 
weeds that grow quite quickly. You can have quite a bit of growth, which will com compete with the crop um, all the way up until that time. So you need to know which 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 is the case. And like Dermot says, we, we need to try and get as big a crop as we possibly can, which can cut down on nitrogen after that. So I suppose, Michael, there's no, there's no one solution. You kind of have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis, look and see what are the predominant weeds in the crop and act accordingly and choose your your your, your um, products accordingly. And if I can make a kind of a plug, an unashamed plug, we have just after updating today and yesterday, the um, the Chagas crop report and the weed, weed control and the herbicide options, herbicide control options in oil drape for, for, for farmers and for agronomists out there. So if people want to download or get onto the, uh, or Google the Chagas crop report, those reports are there. And it's a very useful guide in terms of how you can control the different weeds and different scenarios that, that you're going to encounter. That's great, Chase. So there's certainly lots of uh, lots of options and as much as um, techniques to actually do it, whether it's pre or post emerge. So look, th thanks very much for that. And thanks very much, Dermot, for, for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks very no much, Michael. So that's it for this week. My thanks to Shay and Dermot for joining me on the podcast. I just want to mention a couple of areas before I sign off for today. In order to understand the aspects of the podcast which are most appealing and beneficial to you, I would greatly appreciate if you could take three or four minutes to complete a survey. The details of this are in the podcast notes. The Chagas Crops Forum is running again this year on Thursday, September the 8th in the Kelly Shee Hotel, Nace. The event will cover areas like the changes we can expect in CAP 2023 and the new Acres Environmental Scheme. But we'll also concentrate on the risks involved in producing crops for the 2023 harvest. Mark this in your calendar and I'll certainly be looking forward to meeting you at the event. So finally, don't forget if you enjoyed this podcast and recommend it to a friend or colleague and as always rate, review and follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more information, go to chagas.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week with more tillage news and advice.